Hi, this is Kelly Vannon, host of Today's Country with Kelly Vannon on Apple Music Radio. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Spotify for Artists, fan study, a deep dive on catalog. From The Guardian, the work we do isn't algorithmic. A&R in the era of TikTok. From Media, what happens when the relentless toll of the music industry meets the creator economy in a cost of living crisis? And from Peter Sinclair, the CEO and co-founder at BeatBread, what we've learned after nearly 500 artist advances, independence is cool, control is even cooler. All right, Jay. We have talked before we hit the record button for more than an hour. <laughs> yeah. And yet here we are going to actually hit the record button or let's that we've already hit the record button. So let's yeah. do this. It's episode 112. Yes. Episode 112 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Jay and I are here. We are ready. So join us as we start the show right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up. Your morning coffee is on the air. For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, good to see you, brother. It's, uh, we had to go ghost in the machine this morning. We could not figure out why you couldn't, why I couldn't hear you. And over yeah. the years, we've learned so much about how to do this remotely. Right. Um, and it's, I'm always struck by sometimes it's the weirdest thing. Here we were, you, you were tearing apart your system. And what ended up happening was my iPad on my side, I just rebooted it and that fixed everything. Yeah. Ghost in the machine. It's so weird. So yeah. weird. But uh, yeah. what a lovely, lovely introduction we had. Oh, yeah. Uh, special shout out to Kelly Bannon from uh, Apple Music Radio um, for that really cool intro. Um, Kelly is a CMOR, CMA Award finalist uh, for Broadcast Personality of the Year. And this is the first time that that's happened from uh, somebody from a DSP platform. 
Yeah, sweet. Uh, Kelly launched Apple Music Radio's first country show, Today's Country Radio, with Kelly Bannon in 2019. Her show is now the most listened to show on Apple Music Country. Yeah, she's interviewed stars like Dolly Parton, Carrie Underwood, Luke Combs, Maren Morris, Miranda Lambert, Luke Bryan, Jason Aldean, holy cow, and, uh, and many, many others. Yeah, and she was included. She was also included in Billboard's 2022 Country Power Players list. So big congratulations, good luck, Kelly. We appreciate you giving us a little recording like that. It's yeah, nice. and I don't know cool. if you're aware um, of just how great you know Apple Music Radio is. You know, people are always talking about playlists, but you know, I grew up on radio. I grew up on yeah. you know personalities and Apple Music Radio. You know, just this coming week. You know, just a few highlights. Um, Zane Lowe show. You know, if you know Zane Lowe, he's got an mm-hmm. amazing show. Um, on Tuesday, there's the Essential Album, uh, 25 Years of Janet Jackson's Velvet Rope uh, with Dottie. I'm looking forward to that. Um, also, uh, Countrywide Radio with Morgan Evans. Uh, that's celebrating Latin Heritage Month. You know, and on Thursday is Kelly's show, the Kelly Bannon show, and she's got Mickey Guyton on. And I'm a huge fan of Mickey Guyton. I had the pleasure of uh, meeting her uh, thanks to uh, Cameo Carlson. Um, just uh, I love her music and she's such a great person. Um, and then a couple others, you know, uh, Apple Music Hits. Uh, there's a show coming, uh, Rock Classics Radio with Jen, and they're going to cover the Cranberries. So don't don't miss that. That's this coming Friday. And then the last one I want to just uh, highlight is uh, the Nashville Countdown with Dirks Bentley. You know, so this episode celebrates the 25th anniversary of Keith Urban's Golden Road. Oh, and one last one, um, Southern Craft Radio. This is coming this coming a week from this Sunday. Anyway, it's um, Southern Craft Radio with Joy Williams. Um, I'm a big fan of Joy Williams. Um, I was visiting a, a friend of mine at uh, Apple in Nashville, and I just happened to mention that I was a, a big fan of hers, and I loved her cover of Ordinary World. And you might remember her as kind of the uh, half of Civil Wars. Um, mm, God, I love that band. Yeah. And anyway, he said, oh, you, you like her? Well, that's her right there. And she was walking by, so uh, I totally did the Chris Farley, you know, uh, fanboy thing, and we went over, and I got to say hi to Joy Williams. So um, listen to that show. Anyway, Apple Radio, some really great stuff. Amazing, amazing stuff. Um, and we're this is the first ever for the podcast survey, right? We have not done a survey before. No, we, we haven't. And I'm glad you brought that up because um, this is going to be going out this coming week. So it wasn't in your morning coffee that uh, came out last Friday. Um, but your morning coffee readers of the newsletter are going to get a survey this week. And it's from our friends over at Midia. And it's about the future of streaming services. So we're going to put a link in the show notes. But mm-hmm. if you if you just fill out the survey, and it's really quick, it's really easy, um, you get a free copy of their Future of Music report. That report is a $9,000 report. Midia does these yeah. amazing reports for the music industry. And this is one of them. And not only do you get that uh, report, but you also get uh, entered uh, for a chance to win $1,000. So <laughs> it's fantastic. Check out that link in the show notes. Please fill out that survey. Um, and if you subscribe to the newsletter, which I hope you do, there will also be a link in that. That's going to go out um, about the same time as this podcast on uh, Monday. So, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. We haven't done a survey before, and uh, we're big fans of Midia. Uh, in fact, we're covering oh, yeah. one of their stories today. Yes, we are. And their reports are, well, you'll see it. And 
like like you said, boy, they they are. Um, if when you're a, a record label, it's it's not a big deal. But when you're an individual spending money for a report like that, it's a it's a very big deal. And the fact to get that for yeah. free is pretty ridiculously yeah. cool. They're the best. Yes, absolutely. And we talked about this last week, but there's also that new documentary the sh- uh, on the band Chicago called The Last Band on Stage, which is going to be on Apple TV now. I'm yeah, it just came out. Um, came out this last Friday. Thank God. I got to check that out. I love music documentaries. We yeah, love music documentaries. We'll have to watch that. I've only seen uh, you know, the trailer, which is on Chicago's website. And uh, um, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing that because it's, uh, it's directed by Peter Pardini. Uh, who did that really great Chicago documentary in 2017. And we should mention Behind the Setlist podcast, because that is your other podcast, or one of your other podcasts. But uh, <laughs> you've also got Lee... How, how do you pronounce Lee's Lochnane. last name? Lochnane. I always yeah. said Lochnane, I always used to say. He's 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 the trumpet player, right? Yeah. The, uh, yeah. He, plays, he plays horns, and uh, we interviewed him and the director, and thank you for that. Uh, that came out this uh, last week. Just a, an amazing interview uh, with Lee from uh, Chicago. Well, and those guys, God, you know, you you can't under you can't overemphasize how how influential as a band they've been and how long they've been together. I mean, we're talking f- a half a century, right? Yeah. If yeah. not more. Yeah. And um, it's to have that success and to keep plugging along in those different phases of their, yeah. of their success. It's yeah. just unreal. And they're yeah. still playing. Yeah. <laughs> they're still doing it and they sound amazing live. So yes, yeah, they thanks do. for mentioning I've seen that. It a uh, bunch of times. Can't wait to see that documentary and we'll let, uh, we'll let people uh, know what we think of it. Exactly. By the way, the guy that I get to hang out with every week uh, and the hour before we even uh, hit the record button is none other than Jay Gilbert. He and I have been buddies for so long. He is the co-founder of label and artist services company Label Logic. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which brought us all together for this podcast. And he's a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment. Ah, thank you, brother. And, and this guy sitting across from me, Mike Edchart. A fantastic human being, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music, a left-handed musician and a staunch advocate for spatial audio. Yes, indeed. And we're, we're overdue <laughs> for another trip to the studio, aren't we, to listen to uh, some more uh, spatial mixes? Yeah, we need to get uh, uh, get back up there. So your morning coffee, uh, Let's let's thank our wonderful, amazing, supportive sponsors. Um, the Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features that you need for a professional website are already built in, like hosting and a custom custom domain name, that's easy for you to say, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to help you sell your music and your merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and to help send newsletters, very important, social media integrations and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days, just use the promo code Morning coffee, all one word, and that'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code morning coffee. 
And we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and uh, sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes, Bands in Town, the first app I ever got on my phone. Uh, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform, connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans, managers, labels, agencies, and artists. Access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. So big thanks to Bands Zugo Hypebot and Bands in Town. Yes, sir. Jay and I stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes, we do. We appreciate it. And after it that so meal much. I had last night, I know I'm a little heavier than I usually should be. So uh, <laughs> sorry about that, guys. <laughs> well, Jay, what do you say we jump into our first story from yeah. Spotify for Artists? It's a fan study, a deep dive on catalog. Yeah. And like, all these things we talk about, Jay, it is absolutely beautifully laid out. And easy on a, the eyes. Easy on the eyes. Man, yeah, they do a sure great is. job with these with these reports and things. Yeah. It's uh, fascinating. But again, you know, we've talked about catalogs so much, and we, of course, both you and I, were in catalog departments for labels, and so we uh, yeah. have a near and dear passion for catalogs. Absolutely. And, Always and will. I, and it's a major part of the business it's a majority of the business a couple of fun facts um these spotify fan studies they come out quarterly Uh, the last one was about how to grow your global fan base um and this one takes a closer look at at catalog and it's super important um that uh, you look at catalog because it's a majority of the business. Um, and I love that they've kind of done this, this deep dive with all the data that they have. And I'll, I'll take the first one, which is old tracks can learn new tricks. I like that. You know, there are mm-hmm. catalog tracks appearing on Spotify's global weekly top songs chart. Right. And more and more catalog tracks have been spot, um, charting on Spotify than ever before. Now, of course, there's some obvious things, you know, like Kate Bush running up that hill and things like that. But there's some things that aren't so obvious. You know, since since 2020, the portion of Spotify's global weekly top charts, top songs chart represented by catalog has increased by, get this, 155 percent. So as of this year, almost a third of the charting songs are catalog it's remarkable. And, and and again, this is just starting in 2022, they're talking about back in 2022 was 13%. In 2021, 23%. And then as you said, in 2022, it's it's 33%. So it's it's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, in, in our day in labels, the, the catalog group was kind of, you know, it was like the, the sync, you know, the film and TV people. You know, they were there, we were there, but it was kind of off to the side and, and you know, the numbers people recognize the value of those. But oh, a sure. lot of the frontline front line labels, you know, it, it, there wasn't such a huge focus. And that really started, you know, probably in the 90s as uh, in the CD, you know, with, with CDs and all of the reissues and everything. Right. But it just has continued more and more and more. And, we, and we're, when we're seeing that that big of a span in such a short amount of time, it's well, yeah. Remarkable. And you'll remember when, you know, one of the pioneers in that space was Rhino. Yes. And, uh, you know, Gary Stewart and all those great, uh, mm. great folks over at Rhino. 
um, they really took catalog to a, a different level. And then that spawned catalog groups. Now, look, there were catalog groups at all the other majors, but sure. I think the emphasis changed. And I got to work with uh, UME, Universal Music Enterprises, and the team over there, um, which was absolutely amazing for almost five years. And there's definitely um, a lot to learn about marketing and selling catalog. And yes. uh, I, I can tell you that today it's taken very seriously. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the next uh, number two here is your catalog and your merch go hand in hand. So that relationship between catalog sales and your merch. And as they say, when it comes to selling new merch, it's important to think beyond the new release of fans that bought merch on Spotify in 2022. 88% streamed catalog of the artist they purchased from compared to only 67%. That streamed frontline tracks, which is very interesting. They're more devoted fans, it sounds like. They're they're buying the merch. And you remember we reported on, you know, the partnership of Shopify with uh, Spotify. And now you can set up your merch store right there when people are listening to your music. They can buy the merch. And this is interesting. It sounds like these, these folks that are listening to catalog music are more apt to put down their credit card to buy some merch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So number three talks about sync. And this has been a big deal lately. Again, you know, everybody talks about Kate Bush and running up that hill just because it's been so massive. You know, according to uh, Spotify, it had a 439% catalog lift, right? That Mm -hmm. doesn't surprise anybody. Um, So the headline was one big sync gives you the chance to turn viewers into your fans. May sound pedantic to some people, but when you land a sync, Spotify sees that there's a huge jump in brand new listeners. Um, Spotify partnered with Netflix to analyze a set of syncs and saw artist discoveries jump between 50% and 6,000%. But it doesn't stop there. The rest of your catalog gets a boost too. And some of the uh, syncs that they mentioned besides uh, the Kate Bush was Lizzo, Truth Hurts. You know, um, that sync, it was in uh, Someone Great on Netflix. Um, and that was a 271% lift. So they have yeah. a whole bunch of these that they had, you know, shared their data on with Netflix. And to no surprise, it's, uh, it really boosted the streams on them. Now, I was looking at that list and there's, I guess there's a, a, a something on Netflix called Malcolm and Marie, but it mentions a song by William Bell, I Forgot to Be Your Lover, which is an old Stax tune, which is just like, oh my God, I love that song. I went, after I read this list, I went back and looked at it and listened to it again. I'm like, what yeah. a great tune. And again, it's, it's you know, it's it, classic music or catalog music can just set the stage so well, whether it's whether it's time-based, like a, like a particular era, or yeah. it's just the mood. It's just amazing when you're when you're cutting video and you drop in a song, or even just cutting audio. Yeah, it just changes everything. You know, it's yeah. just it's remarkable how music can frame something right. when it comes to audio or video. And um, if you watch so. Stranger Things, you know, especially that episode around running up that hill. It was part of the plot line. It wasn't yes. just background music. And the thing I like about Stranger Things is it's they're not just a one-trick pony. You know, by featuring uh, Master of Puppets by Metallica, that had a huge increase for them mm-hmm. as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the point number four is when your song goes viral anywhere, Spotify is where fans come to hear more. If you play it right, one track's vi- viral moment can lead to long-term fans. After artists have their first song go viral, we see a 70% increase in streams for the rest of their music, excluding the viral song. Interesting. So, yeah, very interesting how that all works. And again, it's got beautiful charts, and you can... It's got little things that falling. It's just, yeah. Some somebody spends a lot of time on these on these yeah. uh, fan studies. And, well, I hadn't and thought about you know how having a killer sync could uh, or a viral song you know that would also kind of bleed over and and bring in long term fans and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but you think of it as music today people are they don't have an attention span so you know sometimes these are these moments are just that they're moments so number five is when fans lean in they lean more towards catalog you know so you look at the uh you know listener playlist streams um they're 75 percent catalog you know if you looked at the liked songs when somebody you know clicks to like a song almost 75 percent of that is catalog and then when you look at people who go to an artist profile and stream on Spotify, 64% of that is catalog. So fans that are actively seeking out and streaming your music, they love the older stuff. In fact, almost three quarters of active streams, streams from places like listener playlists, album pages, artist profile, like songs, you know, almost three quarters of those are, are catalog. Yeah, I love the next one, number six. Nostalgia has no age limit. Uh, <laughs> the older I get, I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Um, it says, younger listeners dig the oldies. For listeners under 25, over the past four years, their portion of total streams represented by music from the 80s has increased by 45%. <laughs> and uh, I love funny. that the 80s is oldies. <laughs> You feeling a little older today, Mike? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yes. So this is basically tracks between 80 and 89 and it's stunning how 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 interesting um and and how it 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 touches a, a, an age group like that around 25, which is both of our kids' age group yeah. as well. Yeah. And I a, a buddy of mine who I play in another band with, he's he's got a, a long a long-serving 80s band that, that plays around Southern California. And he said he's noticed that lately, that it's a, you know, a lot of kids that basically have just gotten their, their they've just turned 21. And so they're coming to the bars and, and they want to dance to 80s music. And these yeah. guys are killing it. They're making a lot of money. Yeah, I don't um, know why that surprised me so much because my focus too. group of, uh, you know, four kids around that age, you know, just throughout their growing up, you know, they would come home and dad have you heard of this band called queen you know or you know they'd be wearing their ramones shirt and no they were always into catalog um because they would hear it you know on youtube um that was their um dsp of choice growing up was youtube because they could find everything you know and i subscribed to multiple dsps so they they had their choice um but they they really loved building their playlists in uh in youtube and uh yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I think that that's encouraging that listeners under 25 are, because you know, that's the lifeblood of our industry. I think that's yeah, really great. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. So really wonderful, again, a wonderful fan study. And like everything Spotify does, boy, they really put a lot of, a lot of heart and love into it. And just some interesting data points. And, you know, it's I love reading these things and looking at their 
they're fantastic presentations. Yeah, absolutely. Check it out. Good stuff. Check it out. Yes, indeed. Our next story, Jay, it is from The Guardian. Mm. The work we do isn't algorithmic. Did you see who read this or wrote this? Uh, I did. It's Eamon Ford, um, who I've spoken with, and he wrote this really great book that I'm holding up right now that nobody can see, but you can. He wrote this amazing book called (laughs) Leaving the Building, The Lucrative Afterlife of Music Estates. And it really kind of shows you how the sausage is made behind, you know, these big estates, you know, when a a popular artist passes away and maybe their family takes over the business there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes and this book, I highly recommend it. It's really a great read, but Eamon's written a lot of different things that we've covered on this podcast. And this one, as you mentioned, is from the guardian and that yeah, headline but- really grabbed me. You know, the work we do isn't algorithmic a and R in the era of TikTok. And I had the pleasure this week of sitting down with, um, giant records with their A and R team. You know, that's one of uh, Irving Azoff's company companies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were just talking about data and these guys are so smart and they're, uh, they're just amazing. And we just had the greatest, uh, conversation about data. And if I can do a shameless plug, I'm moderating a panel on a and data at the, uh, music tectonics conference. It's coming up on, uh, October 26th is my panel, but the conference is in Santa Monica, um, October 25th, through 27th. I highly recommend that conference. It There's so much to learn. There's so much networking to do. Um, it's absolutely an amazing conference, but I wanted to bring that up because it, we were talking about some of the things that are in this article. Fantastic article by uh, Eamon. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this is, uh, we should mention that this is a reboot of the giant label that Irving started back in the 90s, where I worked actually, and that was um, distributed by Warner Brothers Records at the time. And uh, nice to see him jumping back in with that name, because I remember at the time he spent a lot of money to get that name. There was another independent label called Giant Records. Oh, there that, was. Uh, yes, there was. That he, uh, Interesting. He uh, f- flashed some moolah, and they, uh, they gave it up. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not about the money. It's about the money. No, they, it was, I was really impressed with, with the team down there uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, they do a lot of different things there. And one of the things is, you know, acquiring select catalogs. But mm-hmm. what I love about them is they don't just um, acquire a catalog and then look at the uh, percentages that are projected each year going forward. They have people on staff to actually take care of all aspects of that. And that's very similar to some of the things that my company does. So I really appreciate when people take catalog, there's that word again, uh, mm-hmm. Seriously, so Eamon points out that A and R reps, and for those that don't know, that's artists and repertoire, right? A and R are the wildcatters of the music business, spotting new acts, signing them, and guiding their artistic development. That's a part that people often miss. The yes. essence of what they do hasn't fundamentally changed in, in over a century, but the way they do it has shifted significantly, and we'll go into that a little bit. He starts with this story. Um, that I'm just going to touch on a little bit to kind of set up, uh, set the stage for the conversation. Um, The president of Warner Records in the UK, Joe Kentish, um, he signed acts like Dua Lipa and Griff. Um, He says the early days of A&R took place in an analog world where he might be tipped off at, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon to see an act uh, locally that night um, that he had never heard of. So he'd scramble to arrive in time to beat his competitors. And, you know, but today he says that 
some networks of managers, lawyers, venue owners, and other artists provide solid leads, but there are more resources at hand from SoundCloud to social media to, you know, to help A&R reps discover uh, new music. And you and I touched on uh, a friend of mine that does A&R. I asked him, you know, like with all this data, you know, what are you looking at to sign acts? Are you just looking for things that are popping, you know, on TikTok? And he said, no, a lot of those haven't played a live show yet. I need something that's a little bit more, you know, they have their base kind of uh, Mm -hmm. started and they've got a little experience playing live. You know, they're not young uh, kids that have uh, never done anything before. And he said the number one thing he looks for is a line out the uh, door around the block to see them play. Still, exactly. By the way, I also want to mention that that in case you don't know, A and R is is really an old phrase for from a from an older era. It stands for artist and repertoire at a time when an A and R person would sign an artist, and and this was before artists were expected to write their own music. Right. And that that A and R person would interface with publishing companies and bring songs to the artist, and that was really the skill uh, of what an A and R guy did. Of course, now we kiddingly say that A and R stands for artist and restaurants because you're always taking out <laughs> artists to to kind of wheel and deal in. But as I said, you know, kind of to your point, in a business dominated by streaming and social media, turnover of music is fast and furious. The article says this is far more, there's far more of it to sift through in search of gold. On the video Mm. sharing platform, TikTok, tracks and sounds bubble up constantly and can cause an A&R stampede if they are generating views and shares. But 30 seconds of virality does not make a career. Okay. I, I took that line out and I wrote it down on a separate piece of paper. I'm stealing that line. Thank you, Amy. Yes. One more time. 30 seconds of virality does not make a career. No, exactly. And then so they talked to uh, Depeche Parmar, I believe, who's the president of the Sony subsidiary Ministry of Sound Records. And he said the industry can get very excited about something going viral, but it's not necessarily the sound that's going viral. It's the content, and the music is secondary. Let's play. So let's replay that again. Yeah. He said, it, "It's it's it's not necessarily the sound that's going viral. It's the content, and the music is secondary." And then he said, "That's where you've got to use your gut and listen to the music. That's where A and R is key." Yeah, good point. Absolutely yeah. good point. And I also want to mention and and tap back to that the the great book we read on Warner Brothers Records and talked about after the passing of Mo Austin and you look at Sonic Boom. the Warn yeah Sonic Boom and you look at at kind of their the way they did things and they were such a music based company and 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 patient and you know you've got to fall in love with the music and it's so easy to get distracted with all of the things that are happening now in the marketplace in terms of social media and things like that because it's easy to get fired up when you see big numbers yeah but are you falling for the music? That's the question. Yeah, and you always say, you know, does it make you laugh? Does it make you cry? You know, that sort of thing. Um, they talked to Jeff Bell. Um, he's the VP head of uh, UK for Partisan Records. And, uh, you know, they said that, you know, A&R reps will publicly at least argue that short-term successes just set the bombs under long-term prospects. And, uh, you know, according to uh, Jeff Bell, today the divide between A&R departments and marketing departments has diminished. Part of the signing process is being able to identify audiences and potential audiences, Jeff says. That is a core function of the marketing team here. It's not just that the lines are blurred. They're essentially part of the same team. Yeah, interesting. One of the things he, he mentioned, too, talking about 
Jeff Bell uh, at Partisans also said, he said, things are moving at hyperspeed today, which is a really great way of of kind of uh, thinking about it. He said that creates new challenges for the industry. Culture moves quicker than any business model can keep up with, he says, but it's certainly not algorithmic in the way in the work we do. But that is also really to me, paints a, a really accurate picture of the challenges, which is, you know, everything is moving so quickly, and how oh, do yeah. you, and how do you get a company to, you know, it's, it's the big ship in the Suez Canal that's moving very slowly to to start to to uh, take advantage of all of those things that are happening at hyperspeed in the marketplace, and yeah. that's a challenge. That's a real. That's challenge. a great point, you know, and it's also about. So many other things, A and R's, and you just you know sign a band and they're famous and you're you're done. There's so much work. You have to be that cheerleader in the building, um, that yeah. evangelist that gets the other departments fired up uh, about your signing. Um, Amon points out that A and R is inherently about the shock of the new, mm. but the true alchemy here is trying to ensure that the buzz translates into long-term success. That's key, right? Budgets can be extended and nerves can be held, but only for so long before bowing to the inevitable, you know, and dropping an act, you know, that is simply not working. How do you cut through the noise? That's, that's the key point here. How do you know, with the sheer volume of tracks that are released today, how do you rise, you know, above the noise? And there's a, another piece in your morning coffee. Um, we're not going to go into it this week, but I highly encourage you to listen to the verge. Their podcast is called verge cast. And the headline this week fits so perfectly with what Eamon's talking about. It says, it's never been easier to be an artist or harder to be a star. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I like the last line, too. It says, um, uh, it, um, it mentions <clears throat> someone saying that A&R anticipates, oh, at their best, A&R anticipates what the market can handle rather than cater to what the market already likes. Nice. It's not about tailoring artists to fit the mainstream. It's about working with artists that can drag the mainstream to them and change culture. Ooh. Like, wow, there's a bunch of stuff I need to write down from this article. Great <laughs> piece. Like, um, yeah, amen. it really is. Fantastic. Yeah, great things to think about. And, and you know, and it's it's it used to be much easier to be patient, right? There are far fewer releases. Oh, yeah. And there wasn't the public company pressure for, for profits. And, um, you know, right. a lot of this, we talked about catalog earlier. A lot of this catalog was developed at a time when labels could afford to be more patient. Yes, artist and development. Like some of these artists, artists some of my favorite artists, you know, didn't hit right away. Look at uh, Cheap Trick. You know, they had patience to wait through, you know, these, uh, you know, Cheap Trick. In color, heaven tonight, and at working their way up to when they kind of popped on Budokan and Dream Police and etc. But you can say that about so many different bands that because the label was patient and they would get to this. Now they have this great catalog, you know, at Warner yes. Music, Universal, etc. And you you would never have that if you just drop somebody after the first focus track didn't perform. Exactly. The, the the example I always use is Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon, one of the biggest selling albums of all time. I believe that was their seventh release, or if not their sixth release. Yeah. And that's just remarkable that that 
EMI, their the label at the time, stuck with them that long. Yeah. You know, and they lost their lead singer after the first album. And it's like, you would have dropped that band now. And yet, it, and yet that catalog is one of the most valuable in, in music. And it took them a long time to get to those points where those yeah. albums were the blockbusters they were. So right. really and wonderful. Some, some records don't ever have big numbers, but they're very influential and bring people in. And it was funny. We were talking about that with the giant uh, marketing and A&R team. And they kind of had the same example that I use, which is Sonic Youth. They yeah. got signed to DGC Records when it was new. And one of the reasons for that is they were highly influential with other bands. And the reason that Nirvana signed with D DGC was because they yep. wanted to be on the label that Sonic Youth was on. So it can't all just be about that viral hit, that big sync, that TikTok moment. There's got to be some artist development in there, too. But uh, fantastic piece uh, by Eamon Ford. Thank you. Yes, Eamon. indeed, Eamon. Indeed, excellent article. Uh, the next one from Media. What happens when the relentless toll of the music industry meets the creator economy in a cost of living crisis? Yeah. I love again a lot of these great descriptors about kind of the, the the new music business and this sort of relentless toll and just the speed that everything is happening. So let's uh, yeah. And this was written by Hannah Collert. And uh, again, we're you and I are such huge fans of you know Mark Mulligan and Keith Jopling and all the people over there at Midia. They just put out the best research um, in the business. And once in a while, they'll you know they'll pop these articles out to kind of uh, talk about certain uh, subjects, and uh, they're just the best. And Hannah points out that the music industry today is kind of in a cultural crisis. Um, it's more demanding than ever, right, to be successful. And with the work required to meet the demands of social algorithms and to cut through the clutter and, you know, being more competitive than ever, in addition to touring, you know, being huge, uh, you know, was hit hugely by the pandemic. Um, and now cost of living is horrendous, you know, and the ability to attend real life concerts is still challenging. So after remuneration, there's that word again, on streaming has broken for has been broken for a while and NFTs have failed to kind of step up and fill that gap. Creators who are making a living by being artists are finding it harder than ever to make ends meet. It's it's yeah. really tough out there. Um, there's been some articles lately about um, uh, you know, touring and how expensive it is and how hard it is to find a bus. You know, um, Billboard did uh some really interesting stories about just the cost now associated with trying to be on the road. It's really hard to even break even. It is, absolutely. Um, Hannah mentions in stark contrast, and we've talked about this a lot, it has never been easier to become a music creator. The, avail yeah. the availability of software, sounds, hardware, and instruments at affordable entry-level prices has made it imminently accessible to reach a high stage of quality without much time or financial investments. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this a lot. You know, in our day of starting to play music, you and me, Jay, you know, the, what you wanted to do was get a record label. You wanted to have your records in the record store next to your favorite fans. Well, yeah. guess what? It, that's now the way it is. And the floodgates have opened. Yeah, that's not hard anymore. Not that hard anymore. As I mentioned, social platforms like TikTok have made it possible to compete on the same airwaves as the superstars. And anyone with an interest can now make a little bit of revenue on the side 
by uploading their work to a platform of choice and finding a niche right. fan base. But I have to but, ask the question, you know, what what is success? Because we did that panel at Americana yeah. Fest with some artist mm-hmm. managers, and that was one of the key questions there because very few artists see success as the same. Some people just want this experiential thing where they just want to do it. You know, like you and I did when we were younger, we just wanted to do it. It was fun. I don't think we put a lot of thought into what kind of publishing revenue we could make or sync licenses or any of that stuff. It was really like, I just loved playing shows with some fun, talented musicians. And, you know, we had a lot of fun with it, but success today to some people is a, it's their social footprint. It might be the streaming numbers that they get. It could be the cap rooms that they're, they're playing. There's so many different accolades. There's so many different measures of success, but it comes back to that verge headline. It's never been easier to be an artist or harder to be a star. And Hannah um, points out this interview uh, with Trent Reznor recently that revealed that artists, well, he has his qualms about the, you know, ready availability of things like synthesizers and other equipment. He said that, you know, with all these tools available, every synth in the world available to anybody essentially for free, you'd think that maybe music might be more interesting or experimental or exciting or branch off in new places, but it doesn't seem to be happening. And it reminds me of a conversation I was having with um, Roger Manning, Roger Joseph Manning Jr., who is a, a friend and a client. Uh, he's recently, you know, played keyboards for Beck amongst, uh, you know, many other bands like Jellyfish, etc. Anyway, when he was younger growing up, he collected these keyboards and they had different sounds and, you know, the Moog synthesizer and all these different things. And he was telling me that today, uh, and you know more about this as, as a, a keyboardist, uh, I mean, kind of explained to me how people can basically buy these sounds for their digital keyboard without having to buy 180 different keyboards. They can just buy the software, right? Yep. You can buy, you can buy software collections or emulations. And yeah, you know, you used to, I mean, especially as a kid growing up playing in bands and being a keyboard player, synthesizers for the most part were unobtainium. You know, they were unbelievably <laughs> expensive. Were they? Unbelievably expensive. Oh, a, a, a mini Moog, you know, one of the classic synthesizers was about, Two grand in like what, 19... what kind of year was this? Like what era? Like seventy seven. Oh my so. gosh, that yeah. kind of money yeah. back then. That's like oh that's yeah, what a car Pro- cost. Exactly, that's what it was. Yeah, it was like a car payment. And if you're in high school, it's like who can afford stuff like that? And so, and I think he, he brings up a great point, which is it, it's just so cheap to get all that stuff now, or to get emulations. You can get a fantastic mini Moog uh, app on your iPad that sounds unbelievably great, and it's like nine dollars it's it's unbelievably cheap but like trent says you would think with all these tools but it's also it's also almost overwhelming all of the and we've talked about this too you know when when in the old days you had to make decisions and and stick with those decisions now because you had a limited number of tracks you had a limited number of instruments you could buy now just it's it's, the sky is wide open but it's too many choices and i think like trent says we're not necessarily making better music now because all the tools are available and cheap yeah um it's you know there's nobody's really well there's are people that are pushing the envelope but it's you would expect more i suppose is the best way of saying it yeah i was talking to a friend of mine about this and he was saying that a great song is a great song 
And if you can strip it down and just sit down at a piano and have somebody sing and you play the song and it's still melodic mm -hmm. and it still holds together or an acoustic guitar or something like that, he said that's kind of how he looks at some of these great songs because all the great songs you can do that with. Yes. And with this kid in the candy store mentality of you have unlimited choices of loops and beats and synth sounds and all of this, um, I think it can get in the way of just focusing on the great song. It's still a meritocracy. It's still all about great songs. The other stuff is kind of, you know, frosting. Absolutely. Absolutely. But of course, so we've got all of that stuff. As she says, now enter, of course, a cost of living crisis. North American European markets will be facing sky-high heating bills this winter, while, while many developing markets continue to face the flooding, fires, and heat waves of the climate crisis. What's mm. going on in Ukraine? There's Ugh. just so many things that are happening, uh, and it plays a huge role in people's ability to cope. How can they afford? Is there is is how can they afford it basically? And that's why coming up in the coming months, they're going to lay the groundwork for an entirely new creative heyday, maybe. Um, yeah. But you know, it's 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 such challenging times right now. And like you said, I mean, I just paid six fifty a gallon of gas. We're the most expensive right now in SoCal. Yeah. If you're going to try to do a, a a station wagon tour and go just up and down the coast in California, that right there will probably eliminate. The, Everything the is more expensive, right? Yes. And even vinyl, because it's, you know, made from petroleum products is, you know, besides the lead times, it's super expensive. And, and Trent Reznor's complaint is that nowadays it's a great time for cool, creative types to be making these things, you know, and for the public to have access to all of this, you know, relatively cheap. But he said, you know, I think we need to try to not overcorrect and over deploy the tools that can become lifeless a sterile sound or too perfect. And I noticed that with an album I was listening to lately where the harmonies were too perfect. So it almost sounded mm -hmm. like an organ. Um, and the beauty of music, at least for me, is the imperfections. When I yes. was growing up, I had a live album collection. I would buy live albums for any artist I could find because I loved the contrast, the, the differences between the live and the studio album. I didn't learn until many, many years later that a lot of artists go back in and take those live tapes and do overdubs and fix mistakes and things mm -hmm. like that. But I just love live albums. I had one of my clients recently send me uh, a board tape from a tour that just ended because I love those slight imperfections uh, where you might be a little flat or the harmonies aren't exactly perfect because that's that human element that just I, I just love it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And then, and it, you you hear variations of the tr of the song or variations of the guitar solo when they're when you hear live versions, and it's yeah, it, it is magical without a doubt. And that's the you know when and you know I, I we've seen it from the other side of the glass as well. When you're in the studio and there's a flat note or a little imperfection, you're like. Oh, that's all I'm going to hear now. That's like you just listen to the track. That's the only thing you hear. <laughs> I got to fix that. I got to fix that. But you're right. I think you can fix you can fix out the soul of a song by by over perfecting it. Yeah. And with I the agree. tools now, it's it's so easy to go in there and just if you've ever seen the 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 way the the pitch correction works, it's just like a little line. And you just push it up a little bit. Oop. 
there we go. That's now that's in tune. Yeah. Um, but again, you're taking away the soul of it. And you listen to like some of the, the it talked about cataloging some of the classic catalog albums. You 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 put a, a metronome up to it, and it speeds up and slows down. It's not perfect. It's not in a grid. Yeah. But it's it's got that. It's got that. It's just got a. It's. It's specialer. It's yeah. more special, I should say. That's easy and for you to say. No, I, I agree with you 100%. And the last line sort of sums things up. I handed it such a, a great job on this article. Um, new sounds will emerge and find their groove, spin, character, and audience. Creativity thrives on limitation, and the industry is about to face the reckoning this period will offer in that regard. And I got to tell you, nobody knows the future, but these, uh, these predictions from media... Most of the time, they're they're right. Yeah, you know what I mean, so yeah. great piece, uh, Midia, uh, Hannah Collart, fantastic job. Yes, indeed. And our last article, Jay, from Peter Sinclair, the CEO and co-founder at Beatbread. Uh, what we've learned after nearly 500 artist advances: independence is cool, control is even cooler. And Beatbread is such an interesting company. Um, you know, they're basically. It's it's there's sort of like this weird thing between a label and and not where they're but they're giving advances. Well, uh, it's which... kind of think of it as like a loan, um, and they're not taking your master. Basically, they'll pay up to eight times your annual streaming income, and that's the reason why catalogs are selling is this predictability that streaming mm-hmm. has um, afforded brought us. to the brought to the industry. Right. So if if you have history on your music. Um, Beatbread is willing to give you an advance, like I said, up to eight times your annual streaming. You keep 100% ownership of all your recordings, publishing, touring, merch, sync, all of that, right? They're basically looking and saying, okay, you're going to be generating this kind of revenue over the next few years. We're going to loan you this much money and we're going to take a small percentage of that. And what that does is it gives you the freedom and puts you in charge. Um, it's a lot of what my company does at Label Logic is now um, you're not uh, beholden to a label who maybe will own your master and maybe you'll get mm-hmm. a royalty. And I do need to say this. We've said this before, but it's really important. We've worked for labels. We're not label bashers. Labels will throw gasoline on your fire with their global network of relationships and smart people, and they can blow things up and we've seen it for decades i'm not one of those guys that says oh you know you don't need a label ever but for some people um some new and developing artists especially um you can fund these things yourself with uh platforms um like beatbread and i read this thing that peter sinclair their ceo and co-founder wrote um i found it on linkedin and i thought it was really interesting that because they have um funded, you know, hundreds of projects, here's some things that they've learned. Yeah, exactly. And um, he said, what we got right, well, he, he talks about what we got right from the beginning. He said, there are massive numbers of artists who can make a living from their recorded music, more than many understand. Yeah. He said, five or six years ago, only about 5,000 artists globally 
made more than $50,000 per year on their recorded music. Now that number is five to seven times as high and will be more than 10 times as high in a few years. He says, we've seen artists ranked outside the top 2,000 globally, making more than $100,000 per month in streaming. Wow. Artists outside the top 30,000 making over $5,000 per month and artists outside the top 100,000 in the global chart metric and Spotify rankings making over $1,500 per month in recurring streaming payments. Yeah, and if you read the press, the music press, you hear a lot about the economics of streaming and how you really don't make a lot of uh, revenue um, as a developing or middle-class artist from sales streams and uh, downloads, um, which are still a thing uh, some places. And I love that they pointed out some examples of some success stories there uh, for those artists. He also mentions that artists can grow very fast without being signed. He says all it takes is a good content, uh, a plan, and a little resource. Um, we've funded hundreds of artists who have grown their fan bases to significant levels, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of monthly listeners. And this has happened before ever getting involved with a label. And you and I talked about this on the A&R side. You know, labels... Put aside the TikTok viral moments, you know, labels want to see that you have your stuff together, that you've played live, you've done some touring, that you've sold some merch, that you have a fan base that's active and trending positively so they can throw some gasoline on your fire, not start and try to go from zero to 60. Um, as he points out, many of them have doubled or tripled their fan bases within a year and leveraging BeatBread's funding, you know, with a talent for marketing and content creation they already possess within their own team. So we're seeing that a lot lately where artists and managers are becoming um, their own team, their own label. And I would argue that this has been going on for decades, but is becoming more popular. Managers like Howard Kaufman and Irving Azoff were pioneers in managers that took over some of the roles of labels and yeah. distributors even, and someone like Jonathan Daniel over at Crush, he doesn't wait for anyone. I mean, he told me this. He doesn't wait for anyone to do these things. He does it. He takes the control and the responsibility uh, for himself. But he was the one that told me early on that a label, um, you can't count on them to do everything, right? They're very good at what they do, but they're their uh, core competency is really throwing gasoline on your fire, meaning that if you have some momentum, they can take you to another level. Right. And that's the, remember the subtitle of his, of his article is control is even cooler. And, and I've told the story of, of an artist that got signed at the same time, a buzz, a, a very popular artist that was signed at the same time that Alanis Morissette's record came out. And in that particular scenario, you know, all of the attention and all of the marketing dollars went to Alanis Morissette uh, at, as their releases were very similar in time-wise. Um, and that's something out of your control as an artist. And so we talk about control, how important that is. And, and that's the downside of working with a label is, you know, you're, you're, there's several releases and they're looking for the one that's going to bring in the most profit and a lot of attention will go to a different release than you. So, yeah. you know, that can happen within a label structure. And that's, again, why we're talking about independently, you, you have much more control. As you mentioned in this, there's a few things that surprise them along the way. And he said, artists aren't romantic about, in quotation marks, independence. 
They are ruthlessly pragmatic. A tiny number of artists' desire to remain independent reflects deeply held values and a sense of personal renegade identity. He said, still, most artists and management teams who want to stay independent rationally weigh a label's deal, a label deal's economic and strategic costs against the flexibility and increased upside potential of remaining independent. Mm. In hindsight, he said, this seems obvious, but it's easy for anyone, including us, to get hung up on the mythical stereotype of the independent artist who makes their decisions on philosophical, anti-corporate, and purely creative grounds. Yeah, so I he's saying, that was really, really yeah, well said. There are some people like that, but there's a lot who just kind of look at the facts and say, oh, this way over here makes more sense. Yeah, I think there's a lot of indie artists now that would like to continue to be independent, uh, for that control we're talking right. about, creative control and decision control. But one of the other things that said uh, that he said surprised them along the way is that too many artists lose a great deal of control and ownership without ever signing a, a label deal. And this was the most surprising um, and arguably the most disappointing revelation in their first two years of existence. So far too often, they, they would see a promising artist that was successfully growing their fan base with great content. I hate that word, but I get it. Uh, hard work and their own marketing efforts, you know, but they signed an arrangement with a distributor, right? Or other middleman who not only takes a large share, sometimes as much as 30 or 50% of an artist's economics, but also locks them into a captive marketing or distribution arrangement, Right. So yeah. I think you have to be careful as an independent artist. You know, one of the first hires uh, that we, we recommend is a music industry attorney, even before a manager, yes. to help you yes. set the stage for your career and, and your goals. Um, because it's not just the, you know, evil, you know, major labels. You know, um, there are some bad actors out there on the distribution side and even on the publishing side that'll take more than their fair share and they prey on new developing artists. Right. And if you're an artist, you know, it's also, boy, you know, we, we talk a lot about how hard it is to be an artist now because you kind of have to ha wear so many different hats. Um, but one of the hats you do need to do, as Jay had mentioned, is at least educate yourself on some of the of the deals that are out there when if the the Don Passman book is a must purchase uh everything you need to know about the music business and what what edition is he on now 10 it's 10 uh, edition number 10 that's it's the, the best that's one a, we rave about best it because one. it covers yeah. all the newer digital stuff exactly. all of his books are good but you're absolutely right it's it's a must it's a must have it's, it's a must have so i think anybody that's that's <clears throat> contemplating any sort of a deal to 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 at least educate yourself, doesn't it, it'll cost you the cost of the book, and that is is money well spent. Um, one of the things they also, which was interesting, that they also learned is is more artists can retain control, ownership, and flexibility inside a major label deal than they had imagined. He said, some artists who have taken funding from us have used it to grow their fan bases, increase their leverage, and then sign a short-term limited works deal. A few songs are up to a whole album's worth with a major label under terms that include a healthy economic share, ownership of their catalog, and critically, freedom to quickly flip independent on their next project. Yep. So again, having that flexibility... Um, and, and the deals have changed because the, Very much, much so. more competition. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've reported on that, how these label deals are evolving and changing. And a lot of it, uh, favors the independent artists. So 
listen, uh, I highly recommend that you check out uh, Beat Bread. There are other platforms that do this. Um, I've heard really great things about uh, Beat Bread. Um, and great piece by uh, Peter Sinclair, their CEO and uh, co-founder. Yes, and boy, these all of these new sort of angles from from the old music business are just fascinating, and it's uh, it's great to keep learning about them as we try to do. And on that note, Jay, we must wrap up episode number one twelve of the podcast. I know it goes so fast. Uh, so thanks to everyone for listening in today, boy Jay, and I certainly appreciate it. Uh, we hope you have a wonderful week, and Jay and I will be back next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.